So today we have a very special guest. Scott D. Clary joins the show for a second appearance on the podcast. Scott is the host of the Success Story Podcast, a show with over 20 million downloads in just a matter of years. He's also the CEO of the startup Omnipatch and a general partner at Celestial Ventures. So first off, thank you, Scott, for taking the time to join the show again. It's a pleasure to have you back. Dude, thank you for having me on a second time. I feel very honored <laughs> because you've had very impressive guests on from one podcast host to another. I haven't even had Mark Cuban on yet. So congratulations. One day, one day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it's a great to have a conversation again and connect back up. So let's go all, let's go deeper into what we last talked about. So let's start with your background growing up and then how you start first started getting interested in sales and marketing and then how that translated to what you're working on today. Sure. So, I mean, growing up, my family was not not like a, a traditional entrepreneurial family. I didn't come from parents that built their own thing. In fact, my family was the complete opposite. So my dad worked, actually all my family, most from you know, my grandpa, my uncle, they all worked in policing at one point. So like government jobs, very stable. My dad actually branched out from policing and he went into like counterterrorism work at one point. So it was always government jobs. Mom worked for university. So she worked in science for the majority of her career. So very like stable, right? Not entrepreneurial, not even private industry, really. I mean, mm. I had one uncle that worked and he was in real estate, he did well for himself. He was in private, but more or less my family was like very risk adverse. So then the follow-up question is, <laughs> Why did you end up <laughs> doing what you did, which was starting off in sales, in tech sales, actually. I started in tech sales when I was still in university. So my first job ever, ever pre-tech sales was actually coaching tennis, which I loved. But my first real job was tech sales. So I was selling telco, which was it started off in consumer sales and small business and mid and enterprise. So I sort of kept progressing through and selling to bigger markets. How did I get into that? I was a nerd. I loved tech. I loved how easy it was to understand and explain to people. I was a super charismatic individual. And if you had the knowledge plus the charisma, it seemed to be an easy job where you can make a ton of money. So sales, especially tech sales, you can make significant amounts of money. And especially in university, the way that I saw it, it was the most money that I could make doing something that I actually enjoyed. And then I also saw it as something that I could actually double down on post-university. I was thinking about going to policing pre-university, thinking about going into law because I always had aspirations to do like a little bit more. Not saying there's anything wrong with, you know, what my family did and where I came from, but mm -hmm. I wanted to push the bar a little bit more. And I don't really know where that came from. I don't know like where my drive came from to like do more, but it mm -hmm. was always there. So could have gone into policing, actually did all my tests for policing, passed them all. I really just had to apply to a police force. My undergrad was in pre-law and criminology, could have gone to law school, decided after my university, my undergrad, I didn't really want to go into law school. So like I said, I was in tech sales throughout university, just stayed in tech sales and I was doing quite well at it and was always a top performer, president's club, winning awards. So I kind of just doubled down on that. And I kept making more money in tech sales, obviously after university, didn't go into policing, started getting promotions to bigger markets, more responsibility, selling to larger clients. And then I moved into sales leadership at another telco. And in sales leadership, when I moved into that role, it was at a different company than what I was working at in university. And that's, it was a smaller company. So because I was in sales leadership, I was also getting my hands involved in marketing and understanding all the nuances of marketing, which I realized were pretty important to drive sales as well. And again, I was, I was good at it, so I enjoyed it. And I don't really know why I sort of stayed along this path. But <laughs> while I was at that smaller company heading up sales, there was an exit event. So the company was sold to a private equity firm. I saw that transaction and I witnessed it. 
And then it was like a light bulb. It's like, listen, if I'm going to be working for, I'm gonna, if I'm going to be working in tech, I'm going to be working with small companies. How do I, how do I become part of that transaction? And, you know, I do, I had some good mentors at the time and they're like, listen, you got to get in early. You can leverage your skill set. You're a great sales person. You're a great sales leader. You're a great marketer. So get in early, work with startups, you get a bit of equity. And then if you work with them long enough, then eventually the, eventually that company will exit and you'll, you know, make a ton of money, which obviously is super rare. It doesn't happen often, but that's what my mindset was. So then I started working with a lot of startups and I loved working with startups. I found that the people that worked in startups are very similar to me. Like they loved risk. They're, they're people that love to figure things out. They're people that love to solve problems. And that's sort of what my personality was. Again, don't really know where it came from, but that was my personality. Doubled down on one particular startup after working with a few startups for a couple of years, actually. Doubled down on one as pro, led that company, grew that company, exited that company. And that was sort of my first exit, you know, tech exit. And I realized that, you know, this is something that I excelled at. So that's sort of my career in a nutshell. Obviously, that spanned several years, but that's how I went from my my parents not working in tech, not working in private industry, not being entrepreneurs, to loving startups, loving working with either founders or being a founder myself. And that's that's how I got to where I am today. And now today, not only have I built a community around startups and business and entrepreneurship with my podcast and all the content I put out, but I also am an operator in another startup. Funny enough, it's not a tech startup, but I still consider what we do to be disruptive. And that's on me patch. So I'm CEO and co-founder of that company. And yeah, that's that's sort of my career progression. Gotcha. And you mentioned the people around you being risk adverse in terms of their careers and stuff like that. How did your family react when you decided to go into a more risky career path? I think stressed. I think still stressed, actually. <laughs> I, think <always laughs> stressed. I think I think stressed, but they trusted me to figure it out. So when you first start off in your career and you do something that maybe isn't exactly in line with what your parents want you to do, there is an element of stress, but that stress tends to wane over the years, right? When you start having success and you start proving repeatedly that I worked in this company and I was successful, then I got the promotion, then I was successful there, then I worked in this company and that company was successfully acquired. And then I started doing some consulting work and, the, and I was making some good money consulting with clients. Like when you start to have repeat success and people start to trust you more, I mean, this is just like sort of a general rule in life, but ultimately the more success I had over my career, even though my parents, they, they would always love to try and understand what I was doing, but it was always it was always something that was sort of foreign to them but they still love the fact that i was successful at it that i put myself into super uncomfortable positions in my career but ultimately came out on top and i think that over time they learned to trust you know that i could figure out life for myself so i think that um i i never really concerned myself with their opinion of me mostly because i had complete faith and confidence in what i was doing myself and I knew that even if a career move didn't work out or a company, you know, that I joined wasn't successful, I took complete responsibility and ownership of that. So it, they, they, they had, I don't think they had as much impact on me and influence as me as, as maybe some parents would only because I put my career and I put my, I put my life and complete ownership of what I accomplished completely on myself. And I don't, I don't know if that was a good thing or a healthy thing, but it definitely allowed me to um, adopt maybe a riskier career path, even though I would say that even traditional career paths are kind of risky if we've seen what happened during COVID with people getting laid off. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, over time they got they got okay with what I was doing and they and they saw those successes. And then, 
like now when I talk to them about a new project I'm taking on or when I'm joining a CEO of a company, it's it's no longer stress, right? It's more just interest in in where I'm taking my career next. Gotcha. And to get to where you are today, your sales background has been very important from the early stages as a foundational layer to what you have as success today. What were some of the key lessons you learned from your background in tech sales that you still apply today? I would say that whenever I jump into a new opportunity, I discover every piece there is about that potential opportunity or that business. And I think that that served me very well. And and I think that I go a step deeper than most. And I think that that's actually what served me in my tech career well. And what I mean by that is when I was selling, when I was selling telco, we were selling software and we were selling telephone systems and basically anything that had to do with like a company's communication needs. And I would learn the underlying tech and I'd learn how a technician would install an actual physical phone system. And I would learn, trying to think, I would learn like how to set up so that the VoIP worked, you know, the VoIP service that we deployed um, was always up and never down. And I learned about setting up redundancies. And I would learn all these technical nuances that you didn't necessarily have to know to be able to sell the thing, but because there was always sales engineers and other people that could support. But it definitely helped you have a more thorough understanding of, of the nuances of the product you were selling and the solution that it was solving for the potential customer. Now, when you take that and you and you look at what I do now, which is I've literally gone into, so I guess that sort of applies in two ways, actually more than two ways. It applies in three ways. And when I say three ways, it, it applies to the three things that I'm working on now. So that complete understanding of the thing that I'm owning and selling and the the ability to dive in and to understand all the nuances of it. If I look at the three things that I'm working on right now, so I'm working on the podcast and the personal brand. I'm working on on me patch, and I'm building that company from the ground up. And I'm also a partner at a private equity firm. So with my podcast, I apply a complete understanding to every piece of the content process, content creation process, from the filming to the editing, to the copywriting, to the graphic design. And I've learned every single piece of what it takes to create and produce a podcast. When I go into, and that's allowed me to be successful in that arena, when I go into like a new company, so on me, on me is a CPG company, my background's in tech, but what I can do is I can go in and learn every single nuance of the actual product of the consumer product that on me that we're selling and understand how to apply my my lessons, my experience, my insight to that product. But I understand that product at such a deep level that I can understand how, and this is obviously important as a CEO, but ultimately that lesson of learning everything, I apply it to on me patch. When I am a partner, when I'm investing through Celestial, I have to do due diligence on a company and I have to understand all the nuances of the company to be able to make an educated decision as to whether or not we should buy that company and acquire that company. So ultimately, your willingness to not only know something, but know it completely and become as much of an expert in that field as you possibly can so that you can operate at the highest level, that is by far the most useful skill set that I've applied to every single thing that I've ever done in my career. So I never just dive into something at a high level and learn the bare minimum to operate. I'll learn every single piece of every single thing to a point where I can either do it myself or at the very worst, I can hire somebody and know what good looks like because I know that thing very well. So I think that would probably be the most useful skill set that I've picked up from, you know, what I used to do when I used to sell tech. And I don't 
necessarily know where that uh, behavior or that mindset came from. I just know that that always served me well and allowed me to outperform when I was when I first started selling telco. It allowed me to outperform everyone else who didn't have as much of a technical understanding of the product. So I just repeated that with everything that I did. And you mentioned your podcast, which is Success Story, and it just tells the stories of entrepreneurs and people in business. And mm -hmm. marketing is storytelling that Apple and Airbnb have used throughout the decades that they've been around. And for example, Apple tells the stories of how Apple Watch has saved people's lives, and especially more recently with the recent event with the iPhone and crash detection and stuff like that. And then, but also Airbnb gets the opportunity for customers to share their life-changing experiences through the platform. When you let the customer do the marketing, it does significantly increase the growth opportunity as it allows the customer to connect with other customers of the company. But how can startups, founders, and companies tell their stories effectively to reach their target audience? I think when, it's a great question. If we start from scratch, if we start from the first thing that's important in storytelling, it's that you believe the story yourself. So I think that is the most important point that you have to reiterate and drive home. We can talk about what different things a story should have, but ultimately, I think that if you are a founder and you don't believe in the product or the story that you're telling and selling, it won't resonate. So I think that even through my career, I've only ever worked with companies where I believe in the product. And if I, if I can't, and that's actually probably a, a side effect of understanding the product so well that I understand the, the benefits and the drawbacks of the product. And if there are drawbacks, I was always the one that was being a pain in the ass to my, my sales leader or my CEO or my engineering team saying, we have to fix this because of this reason, because I needed, I needed to believe in the product so that I could tell that story. So as a founder, I think you do have to believe in, and your product's not going to be perfect day one, but you have to at least believe in the mission. And you have to believe in the problem that you're solving and the audience that you're serving. So I think that that is the first thing you have to think about. This is also why the most successful entrepreneurs, the ones that have the highest percentage of success are the ones that work in an industry for a long period of time, discover a problem in that industry, and then solve that problem. And, and no one else would ever know that that problem exists outside of the person that's worked in that industry. So I think that for an entrepreneur to tell a good story, they have to actually understand the problem that they're trying to solve for. And I do see this as, this seems like common sense, but I think that a lot of entrepreneurs make up problems that aren't really problems and then try and solve the problems that they've created. And I think this is something that is why so many founders fail. So I would say that the second part of telling the story is actually understanding the problem that you're solving and who you're solving it for. And if you, even if you did just that, if you had, a complete belief in what you are actually bringing into the world and you had a complete understanding of a real problem and the and the audience that you're solving it for i think that would be a great first step as to telling a compelling story i think that story would resonate with a lot of people already so i'm not i'm not like a storytelling like guru i know there's probably <laughs> like a whole bunch of like formal steps to like how to tell like a great story but just off the top of my head those would be the first two things that i would recommend a founder do and that's that's why Though that profile of person is more likely to be a successful founder. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you what uh, somebody making up a problem looks like. Look at all the NFT projects. Look at all the crypto projects. That a lot of that is just making up problems that nobody actually needs a solution for, yeah. and that's why you see those markets 
they get pumped up with this hype and maybe money comes into it because investors get excited, but ultimately a lot of these projects die and fizzle out. So how do you increase your success, which is ultimately the goal of the founder? Make sure that you're actually solving a real problem. Yeah, great point. It's actually one that we talked about off the record with Siraj, the CTO of Bubble, the startup company. But yeah, you made a great point on being longer in the industry. You can find problems that you might not have seen before Mm -hmm. or when you were first starting off. But now over at your top 10 business podcast, you have accumulated over 20 million downloads, as we mentioned earlier, and it's part of the HubSpot podcast network. Now, when I was chatting with Michael Sikand, the founder of Our Future, he mentioned how over at his media brand, it was a difficult task to get users from TikTok to explore other platforms like Twitter. So what is that journey like bringing your listeners from the show onto Instagram and then growing your content on Instagram with Instagram Reels, where you now have over 1.1 million followers? And then how can companies do the same when cross-promoting across different platforms? So there's a few points to unpack there. So the reason why he had such an issue with TikTok is because TikTok audiences are the least loyal audiences. You want to rank like most loyal audience to least loyal audience, I would say podcasts and YouTube would be the most loyal. And then you could look at like a a LinkedIn or an an Instagram or maybe even Twitter is like the second tier, depending on what your content is like. And then TikTok would be the least loyal. And how you can add in there, I think there's like a stat that like 25 TikTok followers equates to like one YouTube subscriber. So they're totally different. I totally agree with that point. And you can look at this, like look at the biggest YouTube influencers in the world and they'll have their fans everywhere. Every, if you have a YouTube creator with 10 million subs on YouTube and you look at all their other social, they're going to, all their other socials are going to be verified. They're going to have significant following, great interaction, great engagement. If you look at somebody like, could be like 50 million TikTok followers, they'll have like nothing. It'll be crickets across their other social. So, and I actually... I'm not sure why that is exactly, but I think it's really because the content is so short and there's never really time to actually build a rapport with the person. So, And speaking um, of actually, there was yeah. like this person who went around asking people across college campuses, hey, name one YouTuber that you know. Pretty much everybody was able to name a YouTuber. Mm-hmm. Then he asked, name one TikToker. Almost nobody could name a TikToker that they know. So I guess that's just something to keep in mind. <laughs> Well, it's also because, okay, so I think TikTok's exciting for a lot of marketers because the organic reach is huge. So, I mean, it's it's a, a content deficient platforming platform, meaning there's less people creating than consuming. So that means that when you post something, you have significant organic reach. But if you go to Instagram, there's more people creating than consuming, or at least on par. So that means your Insta- your organic reach is garbage. You don't have organic reach. So that's why when you look to a new platform, it's very, it's very attractive to a marketer who wants to, without ad dollars, get the most eyeballs on their content as possible. But ultimately, I think when you do when you do adopt a social strategy, this is why the social like the social strategy that I adopt is always long form pillar content on mediums that have the most loyal audience. And then when you build an audience on those most loyal platforms like YouTube and podcasts, and if you think about YouTube or podcasting, why are the audiences so loyal? Well, YouTube, I think the main reason is it's longer form, but ultimately there's video. So the person is actually seeing you and they're they're building a relationship with you as best they can behind a computer screen. And with podcasts, Podcasts are intimate because if you have a a podcast audience, you're in their ear for like 30 to 60 minutes and they're listening to your voice for that period of time. And 
I've made this joke before, but it's true. Like I wouldn't even want to listen to myself for 60 minutes. Like if somebody actually <laughs> listens to you for 60 minutes, that's a very loyal fan. And then they're going to, they're, they're, they're going to feel like they know you and they're going to look for you on all these other platforms because they feel like, like they're your best friend. Yep. So those are the two most loyal platforms. And then when you build those up, that's when I've noticed it's much easier to take the audience off those with outside of like cross promoting in the actual content, like you're saying in your videos or you're saying with little, I mean, like every YouTuber in the world do, does this, they'll have a little like motion graphic that will tell people where to follow them on other platforms. Or if you're doing a podcast, you can just tell people to follow you on other platforms in that actual podcast when they're listening to it. There's a CTA to go to your other social um, or your website or wherever you want to send people. But outside of doing that, you're putting it in the show notes, whatever. But ultimately, it's much easier to take that audience and to push them onto your other social versus using the least loyal audience trying to move people over from, say, for example, TikTok. So my strategy is a, is it's like the Gary V strategy. It's a, it's a strategy that a lot of people have used where you not only build an audience on those main platforms like YouTube and, and podcasting, but you take that pillar content and then you can use that. You can use those mediums to pull the audience onto your other social, but you can also use the content that you create for those mediums as content for all your other social as well, so that you're not worried about creating tons of content for all your different social channels. So, I mean, that's also why I chose to start a podcast and not start like a short TikTok business clips brand. I really wanted long form content because I knew those platforms were loyal and I knew that I actually didn't know much about podcasting before I started, but I did know that if you, if you figure out YouTube, all the other social channels will fill with followers. Like I've just studied enough YouTubers to know that that's the case. And that sort of reinforces my thesis. But then also because you're creating this long form content, you take that content, you break it down into all these separate clips. I mean, if you wanna walk through my content process, one podcast will turn into probably 50 plus pieces of content because that one podcast goes into, and the one podcast that's audio and video, goes up on YouTube and on, on my RSS feed, I use megaphone. And then you take that long form video content. I actually transcribe it, turn, turn it into a newsletter, but then I also take that long form video and then I clip it into, you know, 20 different 30 second clips, maybe another 20 different three to five minute clips. So then it's going on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat spotlights, YouTube shorts, TikTok, Instagram reels. So, I mean, it's a great way to build an audience that's loyal, but it's also a great way to create content that can be distributed everywhere with like very minimal effort. But in terms of media in general and, you know, social media, we saw what was happening with Twitter. And then now we're seeing platforms like Be Real, which is an app now being rated like number one in Apple's top charts, go super viral. Do you think uh, Be Real has the potential for companies to take advantage of it? Or do you think it's just going to be one of those things where consumers can share stories with their friends and their friend group? Be Real's super interesting. A couple points about Be Real. So Be Real, there's no organic reach. So if you post something, unless the person's already connected to you, no one else is going to see it. People can discover, but it's not an it's not a user-friendly platform for discovering and connecting with new people. So I think that's going to be a major issue. If you think about TikTok, one of the main reasons why TikTok got so big is because it's so easy to find new creators and it, there's an addictive component to finding new creators. Be Real does not have an addictive find new creator component to it at all because I've used it and it like it's I get siloed in the group of people that I've already connected with and that's it. And if I want to build a bigger community on Be Real, I got to post 
my link to follow me on Be Real to all my other social platforms. So to me, that is a huge red flag right off the bat. Also, if you look at TikTok and Instagram, they're already copying. If I'm not mistaken, TikTok did an exact clone of Be Real and yeah. is now currently TikTok now, I believe. Exactly. You know? So, I mean, TikTok is going to dominate unless Be Real can find a way to to allow creators to massively increase their organic reach, which will create Be Real content creators. But right now, there's none because it actually it's funny. The thesis of Be Real is to be authentic and it doesn't promote like over edited creation of content. It promotes in the now creation, which is a it's a it's a nice concept. But does it does it allow an opportunity for businesses? I mean, or or creators, it would only allow an opportunity for businesses or creators if you can find a way to increase the reach of of every post that you put out. If you if Be Real finds a way to allow themselves to allows a creator to massively increase their reach, then I think it has an opportunity for a business. But right now, if if I'm a business, then I'm just posting and basically I'm I'm reaching my ten people that already follow me. The potential benefit of be real is that you're authentic. And I think that that's something that always resonates with consumers, uh, content consumers. So if be real figures out their reach problem, then businesses could use it because you would have like a celebrity CEO taking a picture of a day in the life of, and I think that would actually be, that would be very popular for people that want to consume content. I mean, that's all, if you look at Twitter, the celebrity CEO, like look at Elon Musk, look at him just being super candid on the platform that builds a huge following and audience, right? So there's something to be said for authenticity, but they're not, they're never going to, they're never going to be relevant unless they find a way to reach as many people as possible. And right now they haven't figured that or solved for that at all yet. So right now, I think that's why people download it, but you don't hear of any be real content creators or people building audiences are be real. And that ultimately will mean the success or failure of the app. Definitely. And now transitioning a little bit into venture capital and private equity. When I chatted with Hunter Walk from Homebrew, he brought up the story of how he received a pitch deck from a founder in an encrypted video of the founder sitting in a car, letting go of the wheels and pedals. And it was a self-driving car that company ended up doing really well. But with fundraising in a time like today becoming increasingly difficult, what are some of the ways founders can translate maybe a traditional pitch deck into an engaging story to catch the attention of investors? That's a great question. Man, these are really good questions. <laughs> so a few things. First, I want to say that fundraising doesn't always have to be difficult, but I think that the first issue that founders have is not even what you mentioned. The first issues that founders have is that they're not there's they're like spraying and praying and hoping that something sticks and they'll try and just hit up every VC investor that they can find. Personally, what's led to a higher success rate is when you actually find, you just do a bare amount of research on a VC firm that has already invested and in, in basically your category with a like business. Like if you did that little research, that would already set you apart because that means that you know what the VC's investment thesis is, you know who else they've invested in, you know that you're a good fit for that firm and that will increase your likelihood of getting a meeting and so on and so forth. So I think that is the first part that a, that a founder has to do, a little bit of research and don't just email and blast a list of 10,000 VCs. When you look at your competitors, you look at who they've invested or you look at like, 
other similar adjacent industries and companies. You can go on Crunchbase. You can see who's invested in their seed round. You can see who invests in this, like a series A, a series B, whatever. And then you look at that investor and you reach out to them and you say, listen, this is what we're doing. You, you've invested in a similar brand, not a direct competitor, but a similar brand at the same stage that we're at. We're looking for a similar check size that will immediately help your chances of, of being successful with that venture capital firm or that VC. The second thing you can do to stand out, see, I'm not a, I, I don't actually believe that you have to stand out because most VC firms and I'll, there's, I have a, <laughs> I have a method to my madness when I'm saying this, <laughs> most VC firms, if you target them properly, will take a meeting. Like they're not going to say no, because they're in the business of deploying capital. And they're in the business of finding good deals. So if you've done your research, you will get meetings with these VC firms. And I think what actually screws over deals is you're not clear and succinct with your pitch, basically highlighting and outlining the things that the VC firm is looking for, which is look at your numbers, look at clear path to revenue, look at your profitability, look at your CAC, look at your LTV, look at your churn, look at all these metrics that will indicate whether or not you're a successful company or whether you're not, you're on the right trajectory. So if you align uh, a little bit of research, targeting the right venture capital firms with basically a succinct, clear overview of how you're a successful business achieving all your business metrics, I don't actually think you're going to have a big issue, getting good conversations and and potentially getting an actual investment. All the shock and awe stuff, it, it may get some extra eyeballs on you, but ultimately you could attract VCs that are potentially uneducated money. They may not be very well-versed in your industry, maybe because you sent them this great viral video that they want to hop on board, but ultimately, are they going to be a partner that you want to do business with? When shit hits a fan and that VC just got on board because you basically you know, you trap them with this great video and you got them all excited, yeah. but they know nothing about your industry. They're not going to have any peers they can call. They're not, they're not going to have any useful, you know, insight or knowledge or actionable ideas that you can use to get yourself out of this hole or how to figure out this problem that you're encountering. So I rather find the right VC, give them the information they need to know, and then partner up with that VC to make sure that if shit hits the fan, which it will most definitely have like it will definitely happen like that person can actually help you out because they've been there before and they know this industry they know this category and that's why they chose to invest in you so that would be my best advice yeah that's a great point especially on the research side of things because when i was talking to one venture capitalist the founders pitched to this venture capitalist who the founders were pitching like the venture capitalist didn't understand their industry but she was actually a specialist in that industry and it ended up being a whole waste of time so doing your research is definitely important and well, finding vc and founder fit exactly but look at look at what's happened with crypto right so why why is there so much vc money going towards crypto towards defi towards nfts it's because that thing you just asked like how do i how do i stand out how do i get a vc's attention well all these businesses are getting vc's attention for all the wrong reasons it's because it's a it's a it's a rapidly evolving disruptive industry and that gets vcs excited so they want to hop on board but VC hopping on board is never going to benefit you as a founder to your point like that vc founder fit so i think that the whole crypto, blockchain, NFT, DeFi industry was this bright, shiny object that VC money was looking at. But then look at all the failed projects, right? If if they if there was VC founder fit, then even if the initial concept wasn't great, 
the fifth iteration of that concept would eventually have been successful as opposed to bankrupt and out of business and all these other things that we've seen happen to that whole evolving industry. And it was the same thing with like, you know, the, the initial dot com. It was this shiny object that investors jumped on because you, you're a founder, you put this shiny object in front of a venture capitalist, like they'll get excited about it. So great. You've got their attention, but that the goal is not to get someone's attention. The goal is to be successful. I mean, that's why we build businesses, right? Like, I think there's also, you know, something to be said for businesses that operate in the red and aren't profitable for years at a time. And we can name some very prominent businesses that, you know, <laughs> probably probably uh, got a little bit more funding than they should have, but are still trying to figure out a profitable business model. I mean, we can e even look at businesses that technically failed. Like, I mean, there's still businesses that are operating, but like WeWork was one. The valuation on that pre-IPO was, I think, 38 or $40 billion. And now it's like pennies on the dollar. There was another payment platform. Was it Stripe or Bolt? I think. I think it was Fast. Fast, yeah. yeah, yeah. There was a couple of them, but Fast raised a ton of money and that totally imploded. So yeah, so I, I don't want to give people advice on how to get VCs excited if it's not the right VC because then that that will happen again. Yeah, great point. Always uh, making sure there's VC founder fit. We talk about it on the show, very important. And to wrap it up here, what are your, some of your takeaways for startup founders in the audience? I, I'm a firm believer that if anybody wants to start anything, the biggest, the biggest thing they have to realize is that it's gonna take a significant period of time to be successful. So motivation is great, but discipline, perseverance, grit, all those like buzzwords, those are very real. And what I mean by that is if you start something, you start a project side hustle business, the, you know, the year one, year five and year 10 version of that thing will always be different from the day one version or the day zero version. But ultimately, if you stick with something long enough, you have a feedback loop in place, you surround yourself with smart people and you learn from your mistakes, you will be successful at something. You will build something that has some value to someone, but I think people just don't understand how long it takes to build that thing and they give up too early. And I do believe that if you stuck it out for 10 years and you take all those things into consideration, um, any business that you start will eventually have some level of success to it, but ultimately it's going to be a grind and it's going to be difficult. And that's why entrepreneurship isn't for everyone, not because of the huge failure rates. It's because of the fact that we glorify entrepreneurship when there has to be a massive reality check as to what it actually means for somebody who wants to start this thing, which is actually why I don't recommend people go all in with a thing day one. I recommend they start to build things on the side while they have an income, spend the extra hours throughout the week to start a side hustle or to start a project. And if you're not technical, find a technical co-founder and build it with them on the side. But there's so many ways to de-risk entrepreneurship. And I think that will lead to massive increases in happiness and in potential entrepreneur success. For sure. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to leave a five-star review down below. And thank you, Scott, for taking the time to join the show. It was a pleasure. My pleasure, man. Thank you. I appreciate it.